Welcome to Raising Standards with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, a true Roman history podcast for true Romans. Hail Caesar. Welcome to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome. I'm Rhiannon Evans. And I'm Matt Smith. Today we'll be looking at Season 1, Episode 5, The Ram Has Touched the Wall. It is written by Bruno Heller, directed by Alan Coulter, and was first broadcast September 25th, 2005. That's a, a whole other lifetime ago. Hello, Rhiannon. How are you going today? <laughs> I'm good. I can't believe it was 15 years ago almost. Yeah, this went up. that's right. I, I, I can't remember where I was 15 years ago. Um, what did you think of this episode? Kind of brutal. Yes. It's, it's getting into that HBO Game of Thrones aesthetic. And it's sort of reflected, I mean, we can talk a little bit about the resonance of the title, mm. but it's quite a violent image and it's it's got a, a kind of, it comes from a quote that's, that's about violence and there were, you know, most of the characters engaged in violence in this episode, even though they weren't at war, basically. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I guess so. But that does become a bit of a, a hallmark of the program in, in pretty much every episode, I think. More or less. You're not making me want to go forward. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's a strange thing, isn't it? Because I know there are battle scenes coming up. Mm-hmm. My memory is so bad that it's all kind of new to me. But of course, I know the Civil War is on the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's here, really. But I guess it's that personal violence. Maybe it's the um, with the, the family members being involved and the machinations Personally, to me, it's not what I'm most invested in. And Caesar let me down in this episode. Oh, really? Okay, we'll we'll have to wait into that. Uh, Let me read out a a bit of an episode summary that I I came up with here. So Lucius Varinus has a setback in his new career when all of his slaves die of the flux, except for one slave, sorry. Uh, After a brief crisis of identity, he re-enlists in the 13th Legion. Octavian helps Titus Pullo investigate his suspicions. Artia engages in some light public vandalism. Servilia engages in some light public cursing. Caesar chases Pompey off the boot out of Italy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Although whether he meant to or not is another question. (laughs) You brushed over some of the violence there after a brief crisis of identity. Oh, yes. (laughs) Again, again, we'll get into that. So if we can start off with uh, what I seem to be the history chunky bit of this episode, I suppose, the two characters who embody most of what's going on in history at this time uh, that were told by the classical historians are Caesar and Pompey. You're getting this pursuit uh, through Italy. We have a lot more fighting in the history books. So if you, we read Caesar's accounts uh, if we read somebody like the historian Dio, we're told there are battles, there are towns resisting Caesar's path through Italy. But the broad strokes, how does it kind of come across for you? Well, I guess it's concentrating on them as characters and what's at stake for them. And that's why uh, the battle scenes, the, the sort of pursuits through Italy and the the more minor characters, you know, the subordinates who are sent to to fight one another, as it were, in Italy, they're left out of it. Mm. Um, I know your theory is that's partly budgetary reasons, uh, which may well be true. I think it's also a simplification so that we can really focus in on the dilemma for Caesar and Pompey. Yeah. 
the thing that I think does seem quite true to it all, though, is uh, uh, at the start of the episode, Pompey is being talked into accepting Caesar's terms, which probably took Caesar by surprise. But it was really the senators who seem to be sticking quite close to what we know about their characters. So you've got Cato being very defiant and swearing and going, no, we're not going to go for this. This is, you know, a prostitution of the Republic, I think he said. But you've got Cicero coming at it from the other side. So I, th- I think that that kind of rings true to what we know about those men. It certainly boils their characters down to the, the broad brushstrokes of the way we think of them. So Cato absolutely is the hardliner. Mm. All right. And, you know, we will see that ultimately in his end. Cicero hasn't wanted this to happen at all. He's sort of the mediator. And I thought he was given a nice little bit of characterization, a bit of kind of rationalization of that point of view in his in his conversation with Brutus, because he hasn't come from an extremely aristocratic and elite family. He has to play along in a way mm. with the leadership of somebody else. He can't he doesn't have as much freedom to just go along with his beliefs. I think that was meant to be the implication of that. So he was hoping that Brutus would come round to his point of view uh, and not stay there. He yes. sort of says, I've got this nice little farm we can go and all this villa, and Brutus doesn't want to leave, and so Cicero feels that he can't go it alone. Uh, whether that would have been true or not of Cicero, I don't know, but they've recognised Cicero's more humble background and uh, kind of rationalised his mediating stance, which we know that to a certain extent he had. He really didn't want the Republic to be polarised in this way, that we'd end up with civil war with nothing in it for him. He, he just wanted everyone to get on and keep the Republic going the way it always had, mm. which was probably very unrealistic. <laughs> The sea air is bracing, at least. If you do not go, then I cannot go, I suppose. It would look cowardly. What matter? You would know it were not so. Oh, I would know, certainly. But I do not have a grand, shining old name like you. I must keep my name well polished, else it looks very dull. This discussion, this back and forth that's going on between Pompey and Caesar via messengers this episode, does that kind of ring true from what we know from the historiography? We do know that Caesar offered Pompey terms on a number of occasions, a surprising number of occasions, you might say. Mm. Most of the time, Pompey just refused. So I think they've written a little more into the drama here. There is there's a narrative in Dio. Should we read that out first? Yeah, go ahead. That, uh, read that out now. Upon which this is based. Mm. What happens in this episode is most closely aligned with something we see in Dio, book 41 uh, of his history. In chapter 12, he says, Caesar, seeing the difficulty of capturing the place, urged his opponent to come to some agreement, assuring him that he should obtain both peace and friendship again. When Pompey replied merely that he would communicate to the consuls when Caesar, what, what Caesar said, the latter, inasmuch as those officials had decided to receive no citizen in arms for a conference, assaulted the city. Right. This is one of those attempts Caesar tries to persuade Pompey to uh, make a truce with him. Pompey doesn't say no outright, but he doesn't... He, he doesn't sort of accede to easily to what Caesar's saying. He's not just saying yes... Uh, and so Caesar takes against him and resorts to, to armed violence. Mm. 
so I think it's based on that, although they make it a little more nuanced um, to dramatize it in this episode so that uh, there's, there's a power play going on. Undoubtedly, there always is. But their particular power play is that Caesar makes the offer and it's a really, uh, you know, tough offer. The, the Republicans don't get much out of it. Mm. We've seen some of this before. He assumes that Pompey will say no and that will give him a reason for continuing the civil war. So he's quite surprised when Pompey says yes, but then he decides to take against Pompey anyway by saying, well, he's just sent me a message. He hasn't come in person. Well, he, he digs through the correspondence and finds a technicality. Although I should give the credit for that to Posca, who uh, dug through the correspondence and, and found the fact that um, that Pompey refuses to meet Caesar. And Caesar very dramatically uh, gives a... Um, what's the line? I've got it here. Oh, I'm on the wrong notes. He refuses to meet me. He refuses to meet me. He refuses to meet me. You've got to give it more gravitas, Rhiannon. Oh, sorry. Go, sorry. Go. Yes. Give it a go. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm give sure I can't. Give it a go. <laughs> You're alone in your room. Give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> he refuses to meet me. That's quite good. That's good. I can be strict. <laughs> Posca here thinks I should accept truce. Make peace. In exchange for what? Peace is its own reward. Snivelry. The ram has touched the wall. No mercy. Pompey has no great army, but he has the Senate with him. He has legitimacy. In Rome, they are the Senate. Beyond the walls, they're just 300 old men. As you say, Antony, but others will agree with Posca. Uh, so in the same scene, uh, you've got uh, Mark Antony making... Uh, reference to what Pompey has done and he says uh, there can be no truce because the ram has touched the wall which is actually the name mm. of this episode uh, and it's a nice little saying which somehow and I'm sure Mark Antony does this with every line in the show uh, he manages to make it sound sexual but yeah can you tell me what the ram touching the wall is uh, in this context it's a quote from Caesar's Gallic Wars which Sort of nice if Mark Antony was directly quoting that and that had been clear. I but be, I, I bet you he was. I, 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 yeah. I thought of that too. I bet you he was. <laughs> Let's just quote Caesar's words back to him to flatter him. Yes. But yeah, in Latin, murum aries atigit. And the idea is that once the battering ram in a siege has touched the wall, that's the sign that the people inside the city, they either come out now or it's going to batter their walls down. Mm-hmm. Um, and once it's touched the wall, it's too late. Mm, mm. And w- um, were these occasionally uh, ram heads on the ends of the battering rams, like metal yeah. ones to kind of signify? Yeah, well, the, yeah. the word aria is also, it's Aries, you know, the star oh, sign? yes, yes, yeah. The yeah, ram, yeah. so it is the same word. Mm. <laughs> it's a nice little reference, kind of internal reference to Caesar's own words. Um, and he's using it, of course, metaphorically, sort of metaphorically. There's no siege going on. So Antony, as usual, is arguing that we should just go for them. Yes, yeah, that applies directly to Pompey in this situation. It's too late for him. The ram has touched the wall. No more terms. Luckily, uh, Posca can find a loophole, a nice convenient loophole of of which uh, Pompey refuses to meet Caesar in person. So, yeah, Caesar's after a convenient excuse. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the way this narrative runs. There's no historical reason to think it went like that, but they're kind of digging into, they're creating rationales and and more of a a kind of psychological uh, reason for Caesar's behaviour, I guess. Uh, Mm. So it's it's a a more sophisticated narrative perhaps than we have, or certainly a more detailed one than we have from people like Dio. 
I do also like the way that they're reminding us that there's a perception that Caesar has his eyes on monarchy. So, and again, Posca's yes. an important part of this conversation. Um, so Caesar's kind of telling Posca to go buy people off, isn't he? Yes. And it's a big amount of money. And giving so them a good rank. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and Posca's telling him off for this as usual, saying, oh, you know, it's going to cost us a lot. Caesar says, if my last coin buys me a throne, it's a fair price. Judicious use of mercy is worth 10,000 men. And if my last coin buys me a throne, it's a fair price. A throne? Poetic license. So I know you think that this is a, a bit of a flaw that Caesar wouldn't have said that in public. But then again, you 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 kind of got to mentally go, how public is it if he's just talking to Posca? Yeah, yeah. Posca's his trusted slave. Yeah. So, yeah. But Caesar's very careful with his words, it's true. But we are looking forward to a time where, uh, at least according to our historical narratives, and I'm quite excited about how this is going to come out in the series, he will test the boundaries of how much sort of kingship will be allowed. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, th I think we're setting the groundwork for that here for whether he'll be allowed to have a crown or a throne or something kingly like that. So eventually between Pompey and Caesar, Caesar will pursue Pompey through Italy uh, and there are battles and sieges in real life in the historical record, but none of that is shown here. It just seems to be a, a straight Wiley Coyote Roadrunner sort of chase. There's a scene where Pompey gets very reflective. Uh, he's on the beach having a soliloquy to his slave who delivers a message. Mm, uh, you can call it a soliloquy if it's someone else is there. Although it's kind of interesting you say that because soliloquy, you're doing it on its own and it's almost like the slave isn't there yeah, until I, I, he addresses him. I didn't think that the slave needed to be there at all. And even yeah, when he addresses so him, he... He's just sort of thinking about him as an object, isn't yes, he? Rather yeah. than uh, talking then, to him as a person. And that's the whole thing, you know, uh, he, mm. where he's saying, you know, um, how easy must it be to, to, to be a slave and to have, you know, no care on, on what's going on in the world or anything like that. How happy, eh? To be a slave. To have no will. To make no decisions. Driftwood. How very restful it must be. Uh, Caesar makes an offhanded comment about slaves as well to Posca, uh, not being brave or having any uh, bravery at all. We always get that kind of reinforcement about how people think about slaves. And that comes up in Varinus' storyline as well, actually, for yeah. this episode. Yeah. Now, I think there's a lot about slaves in this episode and, mm. and how they're perceived and how they're treated. And it's uh, and I, I quite like that because it's going a little further even than just seeing them as, I mean, we saw at the beginning Octavian kind of casually slapping a slave and Artia's always being extremely imperious with her slaves. Mm. And I think that from the, from the outset, they're countering this idea that household slaves could be treated very well and, you know, they had a good life. But that bit with Pompey and the slave, it was very telling, wasn't it, that he's... Pompey's very, it's very kind of internal. It's all about him. He's hes just thinking about his situation and how he wishes he didn't have all of this burden of power and the mm. power that he's been seeking his whole life. He's brought this on himself. The slave has no option. Slave doesn't, can't step aside from it. They're just, they're stuck in the position that they've been given. Mm. Um, but it does sum up nicely how they're not seen as people with a full identity or self-determination. But you, and you can turn that around. Um, I mean, we'd we'd tell Pompey to check his privilege now, wouldn't we? But you can turn it around and say, "Aren't well, slaves lucky?" 
I mean, it's, it kind of reminds me of the way we sometimes talk about our pets. Oh, you know, the cat doesn't have to think about where the food's coming from or whatever. They just, they have an easy life. They get to sleep all day. Of course, slaves don't get to sleep all day, but it's sort of that that line of reasoning. That mm, they no they don't have to worry. Yes, there's no yeah. responsibility. Yeah, yeah. So eventually Pompey uh, does get chased out of Italy and he's off to Greece at the end of the episode, which which does happen, kind of holds up. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, he leaves from Brundisium. Pompey's been in Capua on the west coast. He's gone to Brundisium, which is where you set sail for Greece from. Yeah. Um, and that's where he's camped up at the end. Another storyline that we've got here, and it's a quite early scene, is Atia congratulating Octavian for apparently seducing Caesar in the pantry at the end of the previous episode. You seduced him, you sly little fox. I did not. I'm not clear it is decent him being a great uncle, but who's to say what's decent in times like these? In any case, well done. Let's see Sevilla compete with a soft young boy like you. Let's see Sevilla compete with a soft young boy like you is the line that I never thought I'd hear a mother say to a teenage son. <laughs> it's, it's quite appalling, isn't it? And we read it as appalling, and I think it would have seemed even more shocking to the Romans and therefore extremely unlikely, apart from what we've talked about before, which is that everything we know about Artia is that she was a very upright Roman woman who you know, didn't put a fit, foot out of place in terms of traditional roles. Mm. Um, but she's she's been turned into, she's been kind of conflated with other powerful Roman women in this this particular representation. Nevertheless, freeborn, especially elite freeborn boys were not seen as the kind of love objects of men. So men could certainly have sex outside of marriage with whoever they liked, as long as they weren't married women or freeborn and especially elite boys and girls, and boys in particular in a protected category. Well, Octavian, I guess, is just on... Now, he, they're making him look a little bit older than he actually was, but mm. he's just on, he's on the cusp of adulthood, isn't he? If you know some of the background about the uh, kind of sexual politics of ancient Rome, then it would make Artia into an even worse person, and certainly a much worse mother. The role of the mother is to protect her children. <laughs> and while what we would call paedophilia occurred in Rome, um, it had to be somebody of the right status who was the love object, as it were. Okay, so uh, Octavian is not of the right status. He's not of the right status to do anything he does in this episode. <laughs> when he, <laughs> he goes gooning around at night with an ex-soldier, there, there's a certain amount of liberty taken uh, and a certain amount of anachronism here. Uh, it's sort of entertaining and, and, yeah, it makes us kind of outraged with Artia. The other thing I think that's interesting about it is that Octavian is being portrayed as somewhat of a straight-laced boy, don't you think? That he's... Uh, I certainly his, his sexual morality, that he's sort of appalled by his mother too. Yes, but more so because it's not that it's not the truth. It's not actually what yeah. is happening. Uh, yeah. So he's he's very conscious to make sure that his mother's got the right perception about what's going on but wants to keep Caesar's confidence um, yeah. and keep the, the health issues to himself. Yeah, he's made a promise and he knows that she'll abuse that trust if she gets mm. hold of that secret. I, I just think it's interesting because what we get from Suetonius is that Artia is the one who was, well, I've said, straight-laced, whereas Octavian was a bit of a lad when he was younger. So he will turn into Augustus who portrays himself as being all about old-fashioned traditional values, 
But that's not the way he, you know, he was committing adultery with loads of women when he was a youngster. Shall we uh, talk about Varenus's storyline for a little bit then? Uh, mm. So he goes to get his slaves um, and to, to prepare them for market, but finds out that most of them have died of the flux, except for one young Gallic boy. And uh, this comes down to uh, how slaves are perceived again. This is very inconvenient <laughs> for Varenus. Uh, this is uh, all on him. You know, uh, there's no uh, thought for the boy who seems to have lost all his people that he's familiar with it's all this is going to cost me this is my livelihood this is my career uh and i've got this massive feed bill to worry about <laughs> yeah yeah this is his investment uh, mm. that he's now lost it absolutely feeds back into one of the themes of the episode being the, the treatment and perception of slaves the boy who has a limp because presumably he's been pretty badly treated being dragged all the way back to rome mm. is sort of thrown into the family who don't want him either and um, treat him like a pet yeah 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 that was interesting wasn't it so yeah. that the and i think that might be maybe i'm over reading this but some kind of response to that old-fashioned attitude that you might see in some books that the household slave could be well treated and and was almost part of the family and to a certain extent for the daughters for Verena's daughters he is made part of the family, but a part of the family that they sort of, they're patronising towards. They give him a name of one of their dead Hamsters, pets. I think, Did, maybe. It might have been a hamster. Uh, yeah. Oh, Lord. I was thinking chicken, but now I can't remember, and I only watched it yesterday. Oh, dear. <laughs> anyway, it's a dead pet. Mm. So they're, they're kind of recasting him in that mould. Mm. That was quite perceptive, too, I thought. Even if they are made part of the family by some people, it's not in any equal kind of way. Yes, yes. Varenus, therefore, looking for um, a loan, goes and es essentially becomes the hired muscle of Erasmus Fullman, who's the local Irish mobster for Rome. Don't say Irish. <laughs> <laughs> That's appalling. The actor's Irish. Oh, okay. <laughs> and he keeps the accent. <laughs> oh, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not just saying that old mobsters are Irish. <laughs> Good. All right, I'll rephrase that. <laughs> that, that offend, no, you can keep it in if you like. It offends no. my Celtic sensibilities. <laughs> uh, so Verinus goes and gets um, a job from Erasmus Fullman, the, the local mobster, completely legitimate Roman businessman that he is, and they go and rough up Ranjit, a Hindu who bought truffle pigs from Erasmus, took delivery but never paid for them. Rhiannon, what did you think of a Hindu in Rome? I guess it's not impossible. I mean, we know that there was trade with India, so why wouldn't somebody who was doing trade come all that way? I don't know if we have very much evidence. We've got the elder Pliny telling us that this trade's going on, that India as well as China and Arabia, he says, take 100 million sesterces from our empire per annum at a conservative estimate. Mm. That is what our luxuries and women cost us. So in other words, we're buying stuff in. For women, it's women who want these kind of, you know, silks and nice things that you get from the East. Mm. He's being very, very hard line about this. Cato would probably approve. So we know there's trade going on. So, for example, there's an ivory statue of Lakshmi found at Pompeii, which uh, indicates that this goddess of fertility 
was meaningful there or at least bought as uh, a trinket at the very least. Yeah. Um, and it's not something you might necessarily expect to find on, find on mainland Italy, but it has been found there. So there's stuff coming across and there could have conceivably been traders. It's a bit of colour and a long bow to draw. I found it really bizarre. I found <laughs> I found it very disjointed kind of, you know, it, it raised my eyebrows more than than I thought it should. I was slightly worried when the character first appeared only because he doesn't have wine and that made me think in my naive way, are they trying to say that this man's a Muslim because Islam comes later? Mm. That doesn't work chronologically. I didn't think they'd get that wrong. And then they do make it very clear that he's a Hindu in a little bit of a shoehorned way slightly. I didn't mind the fact that the character was there and I think it is part of the... Um, I mean, most of the characters in this drama are white after all, but Rome was an extremely multicultural place. Mm. So we do occasionally see some slaves or other characters who are black um, because we know that people would have come from Africa into Rome. Uh, even at this point, the Roman Empire is pretty big. It's going to get bigger. And maybe some of that multiculturalism at Rome would have been more likely a little bit later. Yes. Maybe. Yeah. The, the, our problem is that our sources don't particularly comment on people's uh, racial appearance or um, background in that way, partly because, you know, Roman citizenship was in a way so easily acquired. Mm. It certainly didn't depend on uh, how you looked or who your family was. I'm told Hindus live on after death. Not true? Our bodies die and decay as yours will. But our souls live on eternally. Well, that's nice arrangements. You're not afraid to die then? Not at all. I mean, basically, you know, th this show is so good on obscure bits of history in other areas that I can't discount them on this one. You know, sure, there might have been Indian traders in Rome. Sure, we can't say there wasn't. Bruno Heller, who's writing this episode, whoever he's got advising him on history clearly know their stuff. They know about the ram touching the wall and, and everything like that. So who's to say? They would have been very careful about putting this in. And having said that, it was so bizarre that I tracked down the actor who played the character. <laughs> the, the character of Ranjit. And his name is Parvez Kadir. And he was very surprised that anybody even knew that he was in the show. But uh, we'll play some of that interview right here. I was doing something called uh, this drama series called The Grid, and the director, Mikhail Solomon, forgot his name, spelling correct, he was about to go on to this thing called Rome. So there were loads of these mutterings around with other actors saying, oh, there's this big uh, HBO series, and spend it's like the most I've ever spent on a TV series. Everyone should get in touch with their agent. And I always go like, well, often in these things, you deep people, someone from my community, all culture, and they go, no, no, you know, there'll be all sorts. And it came down to uh, Nina Gold. And I think I'd done something for her briefly before in a Mike Lee film. And obviously we know how amazing she is when it comes to casting and how many things she's, she's just groundbreaking in a casting and, and, and brilliant. And that was just um, a kind of uh, a call to my agent saying, look, it's a couple of scenes. We really want to see Parvez and uh, could you come down to London? But I don't live in London. I live sort of like Manchester and I always weigh up actually the pros and cons because it's a full day out and it, all the cost of it and all the rest of it. But because it's Nina, I just thought, look, this guy's an Indian merchant. He's selling these sort of like these um, truffles 
and I'm thinking, okay, he's got to do an accent. And before that, I've avoided doing an accent as such, because often when they're put in, and I mean an accent, like an, as an Indian accent of some sort, because I never want to reinforce certain stereotypes. And I think if it's uncalled for, I actually won't go for it. Or I will have that discussion sometimes in the casting, but it's very rare that I will have that. Often I'll stop at an agent, but this required it. But if they ask for it, you'll go for it. If, it, if I feel happy enough to do it, that's the only one thing as an actor, you can either say yes or no to an audition and you can say, say to your agent, yes or no. That's all you often the power you kind of have. I've been really lucky that I hadn't. And I think on that point, I thought, this is a period where I've read the script. It looks absolutely amazing. It's like a feature film. And I think it has to be. I can't do my own. It just, I knew that it warranted it. So you kind of read it a few times and then you're kind of like in and out in like less than 10 minutes. About a week later, I got a call from my agent saying, look, they really like some of the stuff that you're doing on it. I think, okay, I'll take some of the stuff. I'll take that any day. But the director, he's looked at all the tapes. He wants you to try a few things. But oh, right, okay. We send that off. And then I think it was another couple of weeks later uh, that my agent says, oh, uh, the director wants to talk to you. I was at that point was Googling what he'd done. And he obviously directed Sopranos, which was one of my favorite, favorite shows. So I had a conversation with Alan. He said, look, this is what I'm looking for. This is what I would do and try a few other things. So even though he's in like this one scene, the intensity of thought and the, and the due diligence of just that, thought that's really good because often you wouldn't really think they would be bothered about that but they were really particular about the style of it and how it should be so I did another one and thankfully they, they offered it and stuff so that's how it kind of came about and then uh, I did lots of research it, it was pretty self-explanatory in the sense that he sold these pigs onto one of the characters there uh, Lauren Kranich I think's character and then he's obviously sold them duds uh, and I thought okay uh, and you know I thought that'd be quite an interesting thing to play stuff like that it sounds like uh, they put they put a lot of thought into uh, what your character would be doing and everything like that. Yes. So, do you do you know or do do you have any feeling of of what specifically your character would have been doing in Rome? Because when you look at where Rome is on the map, yeah, and you look at India on the map, yes, th there's quite a lot of space yes. in yes. between them. Yes. So I, I just want to know what your thought thought process was to you know why is that character there in Rome. You know, because of the hub of what Rome would have been like, it would have been the place to be just because of the advancements of the place. I think there's money to be made. I think if this guy comes from like that Asia content, he can sell. He's a seller, this guy. He's going to move around. It's almost like needs, you know, he's going to go where people want stuff, his merchandise. So I thought actually that's quite kind of believable. It didn't feel like it was faked or any way, just shoehorned for the sake of the way I look. And that's really, sometimes I've done stuff like that and you think this is so shoehorned in and it's really embarrassing and you really kind of wince in trying to make it true. But I thought, yeah, you know, they really spent a lot of time in the set of where I was uh, and, and the community around this character as well, you know, because he had all his kind of workers and the, you can see like very status. So that to me felt believable. He's somebody who's trying to make a, a way into this world. So it, it never felt uncomfortable in that sense. Or I actually couldn't believe in this character. Yeah, yeah. So did you come up with a backstory for, is it, is it Tanjit was your character's name? I think yeah, Tanjit. Yeah, Tanjit. Um, Tanji, and, and you know, the, even the costume was so like amazing. You had quite um, a big beard, like, which I imagine wasn't yours. Quite a beard. So, I, I mean, it was one of those where I was really fortunate because I was meant to film that particular sequence later. And what happens is they wanted me earlier. So, what happens if you know, once you get booked to that period and they want you earlier, it's like you get paid twice. 
So it was quite a nice, lovely little job because I, I you know, they, they phoned me up directly and said, look, is there any chance you could come like two weeks earlier? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. But then I phoned my agent, goes, you know, we'll have to, we'll have to negotiate that and stuff. So I thought, oh, okay. And they, they, so I got a lovely double fee for that one. And, and then it was a case of fly to Rome and, and it ended up being there just under two weeks. And it was, so I spent a lot of time just kind of relaxing around Rome. But I remember being sat in the makeup and putting those all elaborated, which I can't remember what the machinery was called, but it was like these pincers and they were heated and it took a good hour or so while they put the beard on to give it the curl. So there was a lot of effort. And the costume as well that they had on me, he's like he was doing well for himself. You could just tell, you know, like the gold that he had on and stuff. So obviously he does a couple of dodgy deals here and there, but maybe that's the world that he lived in. You can do it and you can get away with it. Well, fine, fair enough. So did you get roughed up by Varinus or was that yes. somebody else in that scene? Oh, that's it. He went for it. You got your arm broken, didn't you? Yeah, so we, uh, <laughs> so we practiced it a, a, a few times, but um, I just had to go flying back. And uh, there were a couple of times I thought, oh, he might have connected the chin. That horrible crunching sound, you'd obviously hear that when you're filming. But when I watched it back afterwards, I was like, oh, that's really good. But yeah, he could have done a lot worse. But, you know, being a man of honour... <laughs> So what I thought was lovely, some of those scenes where you come in for a small bit, you kind of think, oh, I'm just a conduit or a vessel to pass information. But you had a little bit of something. So yeah, that was kind of fun to do. All right. So that's uh, Parvez Kadir. And he's uh, working with local schools and councils to make community films at the moment. And you can check out more of that at his website, parvezkadir.co.uk. Now let's talk about the relationship between Caesar and Sevilla just a bit. One, Caesar's very worried about his portrayal in the graffiti around Rome. Mm -hmm. So Artia got what she wanted out of that, I suppose, uh, because she was the one putting it up. Uh, Caesar tells Sevilla that they'll never see each other again. I assume that goes for even if he does return to Rome. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, what, what did you think about their dynamic here? And also, what did you think about the curse scene? Okay, severe. I love the curse scene. Yeah. But before we get before we get to the curses, which were brilliant. Okay. Um I thought it was potentially quite realistic that Caesar would care what his wife thought because he might need her support. She comes from a very well-heeled and powerful family. So he might regard that as important, although Caesar has a lot of power by this point. Would it have been important enough? But it's a good plot point. Uh gives us a chance to see that really exciting graffiti with um they got the latin right mm. which so i appreciated that um, <laughs> <laughs> i mean you didn't need the latin because it was depicted for you the actions that were going on but, uh, um but i don't know how much are we allowed to say matt yeah go on yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> mostly it was right anyway so falator um that means giving somebody who gives someone a blow job futatrix is it means fucker but it's the feminine version mm-hmm uh, so it's referring to Servilia. Uh, and then they used the word kinaid, which is the beginning of kinaidus, which made a little less sense to me because that tends to refer to a man who enjoys sex with another man as the passive partner, so as the penetrated partner. And so it's a 
it's an insult, which was applied to Caesar, uh, supposedly, you know, his the story was that he had been the Kinidas of uh, Nicomedes, the uh, Eastern king. So maybe it's referring back to that, mm. or maybe they were just collecting insults, sure, uh, sexual yeah. insults and writing them up on the wall. Mm. Or maybe the person who wrote it was a bit confused. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're really uh, not just derogatory, but outright really obscene words. So yes. this is very offensive graffiti. And, uh, and heavy accusations as well. So even if Caesar, and I'm not saying that he doesn't, but even if he doesn't care about what his wife thinks and the power that her family brings, it's just simply on the public perception level, he doesn't want to be the laughingstock of Rome. So. Yeah, I, it works for the series. Mm. Everything we know about Caesar from our sources suggests that he wasn't affected by these insults. And, you know, I think I mentioned before that the poet Catullus insulted him in various ways in his poetry and Caesar forgave him, which, of course, makes Caesar the magnanimous one. Yeah. Also, what we know of Caesar's relationship with Servilia, which seems to have been longstanding and more longstanding than any other relationship he had, he did not break off with her. The only way that ancient sources can explain the length of this relationship to someone he wasn't married to is that he was actually in he must have actually been in love with her. They seem amazed <laughs> by this. <laughs> Not and because that, there's anything wrong with Servilia, but the fact that a man would kind of put himself in that position, they might almost see as subservience that that she had that hold over him. And but, judging by the uh, the letters that were read out during the Catalan stuff yeah. in front of the Senate, Here's a secret love letter that Caesar's passing around at the time. I'm sure it's something to do with what's going on in the Senate. Do you want to read it out to the rest of the class? And, uh, <laughs> and it's a love letter from Sevilla. So, yeah. I mean, that, that's considerably <laughs> earlier. But yes, this is a longstanding, love, apparently loving relationship. Mm. But in a way, I didn't mind because although we do have to have a, you know, a scene of hitting a woman, but that's what gets Sevilla riled up in this narrative, of course. Mm. Uh, the fact that she's not only been rejected, but actually um, uh, violently abused by Caesar. And that means we can have those curse scenes which is just so brilliant and very accurate, this scratching of the curse onto a lead tablet and the kind of formula that she goes through, the cursing the different parts of the body yes. of, of the person that she wants to, to be subject to this curse. And we have loads of these cursed tablets remaining that have been found that usually get dedicated in a temple. Uh, in this case, they were put into Caesar and Artia's houses, I think, into a yeah. crack in the wall. Tucked into the wall foundations. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so if you wake up with a headache the next morning, you kind of go, okay, maybe there's a cursed tablet around me somewhere. Gods of the Junii, with this offering, I ask you to summon Tyche, Megara, and Nemesis so that they witness this curse. We can tell from the number of them that remain that this was a very widespread practice. On the other side of it is a, a sort of begging for someone to love you or mm -hmm. for some other boon. But yeah, lo lots of it's revenge. <laughs> Why not? One other significant thing that happens in this episode is uh, Varinus, uh, now that he's had a bit of a try at being a bit of a mobster heavy man, goes back to Mark Antony, who, uh, by the way, has been left behind in Rome much to his dismay, Varinus goes and accepts the job offer uh, to join as the Evocati rank of Prefect of the First Grade, which is the job offer that was made to him in the last episode. So what do we know about the Evocati 
And what did you think of uh, him going to sit a vigil at, in uh, Mars's temple just before he headed off and everything? It sort of makes sense. Mars is the god of war. It may be that, that more is known about this. I didn't know of any ritual. Uh, it may be something they've invented, but mm. I, I wouldn't say it's, it's something that seems out of place. Uh, and it's a reminder of, I think it was in the previous episode, we saw quite a lot of uh, religious observance and ritual and how every day that was, how it was such an everyday part of their lives to pray to sometimes quite obscure gods. Mars is not an obscure god. Um, I would say it might be quite difficult for him to find a temple of Mars in the city of Rome because there wasn't really a one until Augustus builds one a little bit later. <laughs> So, <laughs> so that might be a little bit off. I can't remember how far he wandered, but he was—he still seemed to be in the city, didn't he? Yeah. But, and that was that was part of that republican separation of civil and martial. You know that Mars is generally outside the city, but mm. I'm not—I'm not going to die on a hill for that. As one of the Evocati, Varinus is now one of those experienced soldiers that you want to bring back into the fold, and therefore they are in a special position. He's coming back voluntarily, indeed, at Mark Antony's invitation, although he rejected it initially. I guess that maybe that's a theme of this episode as well. You know, will Pompey accept Caesar's pact? Uh, Varinus has rejected Mark Antony's offer and now he's had to go back on it. The amount of money he's given by Antony is just excessive. I think it's been worked out as a, around a quarter of a million uh, American dollars. Yeah, right. Which is crazy and he gets a considerable promotion he's gone he's gone up about three levels just yeah. by coming back so it was a very generous offer mm. when he rejected it in the first place uh and mark antony wants something back of course he wants absolute loyalty, loyalty which is something until death yeah yeah <laughs> um, and that's quite a lot for varinus to offer because of course he doesn't believe in this cause at all no he believes it's illegal they they said in this episode once again that he's a strict catonian <laughs> they keep they keep Indeed. coming back to that and reinforcing it but yeah um that offer will come back to bite him in return for my generosity lucius varinus I expect loyalty. Loyalty unto death. Unto death, sir. I didn't think that he'd be going back into the military so quickly. But Well, he yeah. had to go back for the sake of the story. That was my feeling. Uh, I remember thinking that the first time around as well, that um, we couldn't really have... Uh, were we going to keep flicking back to Rome to have him, you know, be... To have a strand of the story with a, a businessman now in Rome, it seemed unlikely. Mm. We're going to want to see him with Caesar in the action. It's Caesar chasing Pompey, yeah, across to Greece now. Uh, and I guess the other scene that we get in this episode is uh, Pullo and Octavian interrogating, torturing and killing Evander to find out the truth about his relationship with Niobe. So, thumbs off. Thumbs off and eyes great. out, actually. I think eyes out might have happened off camera, but it looked like when Evandia was, you know, I think he had, yeah. Really? Anyway. I completely missed that. Maybe I just wasn't looking at the screen directly at that point. I think essentially when Evander was confessing, it looked like he didn't have any eyes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it was all a bit nasty for me, uh, which is not to say that nastiness did not operate in the, the Roman world. I'm sure it did. Octavian being present there, I, I found 
very unlikely, the fact that he'd team up with Polo. And I know Polo's been brought in as his teacher, which, again, is part, is part of Artia's bad motherhood to give him <laughs> someone like Polo as a teacher because he needs to be a man. Uh, <laughs> that's not what the Roman men get trained in. They get trained in, you know, how to be an effective orator. Um, but what is interesting about it is the way they're depicting Octavian. Again, seeing him as, as a young man, really interesting that he has this level of perception. It's uncanny, isn't it, that he can just tell when Evander's lying. He can tell whether there's something to pursue. Again, he's being set up as the future emperor. This yes. is how he gets to be emperor, because he can he can just perceive what's going on with people. He knows yeah. how to them. Yeah, yeah. He straight away knows when Evander's lying in this. Yeah, even though he's never met the guy before, never met Niobe before not familiar with it beyond what Pullo's telling him. He goes, you're lying. You're still lying. This isn't the whole truth. What else is there that you're not telling us? <laughs> but yeah, doesn't know how to get the truth. How about we cut off his thumbs? Sure. And it was very weirdly played for comedy that was as well. Pullo's going- I didn't going, see any comedy there. <laughs> the comedy was Pullo going, I haven't actually done this before. <laughs> we know you're lying. We know it. You understand? We have to kill you. I never touched her. Evander, move forward. Your life is over. The only question is, how do you want to die? We need to hear the truth. If you persist in lying to us, we'll torture you. You'll die only after many hours of agony and horror. You give us honesty now, and you'll go swiftly, painlessly. Please. Evander, tell the truth. I, I thought Polo telling Octavian at all seemed pretty unlikely to me. That's, the, that's more about the characterization. I don't know, maybe it was just meant to make Polo look really desperate. He needed somebody to tell this terrible secret to or his suspicion of this secret. Well, look, he's got one friend in the world, and that's Varinus, you know? And he's not going to go to Varinus with this. Look, I'm, I'm, but you know I'm, what? I'm fine with it. I'm fine with it. I suspect, and, and as always, my memory's not good enough to know whether this is a spoiler or not. If it's the history stuff, I know whether I'm spoiling. <laughs> the, the, the plot, not so much. But Pullo does have a habit of going and getting drunk, so he might well tell Varinus by accident. Let's see if I'm wrong. <laughs> but the cliffhanger in this episode is Caesar turns up at the beach and Pompey's gone. Pompey's gone. Pompey's gone off to Greece. And thus... The chase continues. Mm. All right, so I guess in the next episode, that's where we're going. Yeah. Off to Greece. You've been listening to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast for HBO's Rome with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all good and evil podcasting platforms. Please leave a review. They are very appreciated. You can like Raising Standards on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page, and you can follow us all on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. Parvez Kadia is at Kadia P. Kadia 62. I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Raising Standards. So until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. He refused to meet with me. And thanks for listening. <laughs>